0: Hello and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss what leadership looks like in the modern insurance business. We talk to insurtech leaders and founders, innovators and change agents from the insurance industry. We also talk to thought leaders from outside the industry, such as organizational psychologists, performance coaches and investment professionals. Anyone who can add value to the conversation on how to lead insurance businesses of the future. Good morning and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and I'm very lucky today to be joined by David George um, of BICMO. David, good morning. How are you?
1: Yeah, very well, thanks. It's a Friday. The weekend is upon us, so feeling good.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's pretty um, it's pretty glorious out there today as well, which um, to give people context, we are recording this in February, which hasn't been brilliant. <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, it's a nice, it's, it's not a great day to be inside. So I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping you on the... Uh, keeping you inside
1: it's fine it was an office day anyway so it's a good it's nice to have a break from regular work to ha- have a chat with you so yeah
0: perfect well look and um, for the folks that don't know at home it'd be it'd be lovely if you could give a sort of a quick overview of, a, of the big my business and, and what it is you guys do
1: yeah, sure, sure. So my name is David George. I'm the founder and CEO at BICMA. We are a niche uh, a cycle insurance specialist and our mission is to protect the world's um, cyclists, so protect the world's riders. So you've probably seen more on your streets during lockdown. Mm-hmm. It's surprisingly one of the industries that's done well during the. Uh, during the pandemic and um yeah so we're a, a team of i think 32 people now we're based in um uk and, and, and austria and innsbruck where i'm based at the moment um and we yeah we, we set out to really keep um protect riders enable them to do more riding and inspire them to get out there and um you know explore the world on two wheels um so um we, we have our direct business that we we um through the website that you see, but we also work very closely with large partners within the um, cycling space, right through from governing bodies such as British Cycling, through to Brompton Cycle Scheme, Bike Register, and quite a few others sort of coming up in the in the German and Austrian uh, markets as well. We are a team of bike geeks. Everyone on the on the team rides to a certain degree, which really helps the experience that we can give to the end uh, consumer, right through from a national champion, Keith, I had a customer experience in the uh, in the UK market, through to people who commute to work every day. But it's a it's a broad range, but it gives us a good sort of understanding and, and belief behind the set. And from a tech standpoint, we build all the technology that enables someone to purchase a policy view information and make midterm adjustments claims. And we we believe that technology aspect is a really important part of managing that whole kind of customer life cycle um, and really giving them
0: the the protection they need to to carry on riding. Mm. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, David. Is there, um, I'm sort of intrigued about the bike geek thing. (laughs) Is there because it's a bike geek thing, is there a bike geek hierarchy between like the, the commuter and the is there is, is there some biking bullying between like mountain biking and like uh cycle cross and whatever?
1: <laughs> It just is. I mean, the, the split has changed a bit from road to mountain bike as we as we we kind of group around the Innsbruck area, which is surrounded mm-hmm. by mountains, and most people kind of ski, snowboard in the winter, and and a mountain bike largely in the summer. There are there are road cyclists on on, on it, uh, and then it's more sort of on the on the road sort of angle in 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 the UK market. But it's quite a broad range. When we're talking team wise, there is there is a little bit of a split. Um, the engineering team, George, our CTO, is definitely a, a massive mountain biker. The, the, the Others do do a bit um but, but a bit less but when we're talking about customer experience people who pick up the phone speak to cyclists every day put them back on the bikes they, they are they're the bike geeks they know technically and, and just the sport the culture so they can speak to you as a, as a rider that, again a really important part and, the, and then the other team the um the bigger team for um Cycling is really the partnerships teams are the people who interact with uh, the bigger partners, the brands, the retailers, the publishers, you know, and they need to pe- speak to people on the same sort of level. We don't go in with white, white, white shirts and, you know, the latest tie at all. We kind of speak to them on their level. I think that's really why, through not approaching it as like a hard sales sort of insurance perspective, which is why we've managed to to build and retain such a great partner network.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting thing like cycling because I think um, there was this massive explosion, particularly in the UK, wasn't there? And I think it's off the back of all the Olympic success in cycling and then and then people sort of started to get back into it. Um, and I know sort of the cost of the average bike, I mean, you will know this data better than I, but it must have gone up quite dramatically as well. Um, and in lockdown, it's gone up even further because you cannot buy a bike for love nor money if you try.
1: No, you can't. But there's been some interesting, yeah, there have been some interesting trends. So we had the, uh, sort of post 2012 up to probably 2014, 15. We had this really big boom post Olympics, the Wiggins, the Wigan sort of era, if you will, when we were smashing it across the world. You know, Olympics and, and, and the rest of it, and still doing really well as as a nation. You know, on a cycling from a cycling perspective. So was, yeah. there was that big, big, and we was kind of particularly the road cycling market was starting to peak um, around about 2017, sort of 2018. And um, around that sort of time, though, the e-bike market started to come off. So the the average e-bike is worth about three times the average Regular bike, And that's yeah. where the biggest growth is going to come. And that's 35% of our new business now it comes from e-bikes. We did some great research, mm. reduced the pricing for e-bike riders. That, that was quite an interesting one. When the pandemic, it's been slightly different, actually, because originally our business was it was built for the kind of the cycle enthusiast. So we 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 definitely wanted to cover all riders, but as, as you know, with any sort of brand, you, it's good to start with a high end and then sort of, you know, work down. So, the, you know, the cycle schemes of the world, the bike register customers, uh, the average bike value is lower because it's more of a utility yeah. sort of ride. The thing we've seen during the pandemic is actually the volume has grown, but actually the, the average bike bike value compared to a normal customer has come down a bit, so the average premium has come down a bit, and that's really because it's people rediscovering cycling, so they've got a bike in the garage they never knew about, but they don't want to use the bus or the train because it's too close to other people, so yeah. there's that side of things, and there's the new entrance to the market, young and old, who just thinks, actually that looks like a great way to get around, and e-bikes mm. are a really interesting part of that mix because they overcome one of the barriers to cycling, which is turning up at work, being sweaty, people yeah. don't like that as well as helmets and road safety and all this sort of stuff you know we're in a great place with the pandemic with the investment into cycling infrastructure but it's been it's been interesting it's it, it's been a shift in demographic the bike values sort of changed a little bit but like you say i mean unfortunately the the bike industry was caught unaware by the mm. um by the boom and they, they have like a five or six month cycle from manufacture to to sale so we already know from trek one of the biggest manufacturers in the world they've sold all the 21 stock already wow. you know it, it, it is crazy so i think that's going to lead to a shift in the bike industry possibly to shorten lead times so they can respond to these sort of uh waves in in demand but we think we, we see the, the boom continuing for 21 probably into 22 as well and then um and e-bike being a, a bigger mix of that
0: yeah because e-bikes are sort of now fairly ubiquitous aren't they and they're, they're sort of very much weren't the case and um yeah well, my dad bought one in lockdown and um it's I think that's the one thing that you and I touched on when we spoke before is just the value of bikes have gone up quite dramatically and in, 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 and I know you were saying it's actually gone down on an average because of people are, for various reasons but I think people that bought bikes and were into biking before this year people were happier to commit to a larger number and it only struck me when we were talking um, I think I mentioned that I had never thought of insuring my bike which is which is madness because other than outside of my laptop and probably a watch, like my bike's probably the most expensive thing I own and and I've never thought about insuring it at all. Um, is, is that, am I quite common or am I just a bit slow on the uptake?
1: <laughs> no, very, very... It, it's a commonly, Yeah, absolutely. Um, you're on par with, with a lot of the, the world. I guess... Uh, to an average point, of and I guess probably before I got into the insurance game, because that's not my background. Yeah. Um, you, you kind of you look towards maybe an extension of your home insurance policy, and there used to be some really good policies. Marks and Spencer used to have a great limit and not much extra. Um, but 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 it's our biggest challenge is is really the home insurance versus cycling insurance. To really the, the education piece, letting people know there, you know, though it's there. If you've got a low value bike, a few hundred pounds, it's just a commuter. You're just doing it to and from work. It's pro- pro- probably not the right thing for you necessarily. You can probably cover, cover it under, under your home insurance. But the, the, the likelihood that you're going to cl- claim on your bike insurance is far higher than your home insurance. And when you claim for your home insurance, um, you will have an excess and then it does go on a, on a register. So you might have a, a change in your premium from one year to the next. So sometimes it's good to keep them separate for that reason. But also there's a lot of restrictions with a lot of home insurance policies. So mm. if you've got a very expensive bike, it probably won't be covered under your home insurance Check the small print, uh, have a chat with them, and see what's out there in the market. I think in the cycling, um, um, you know, the cycling market. But there's also a lot of exclusions if you if you're looking to even do a sportive if the bike's in your car it might not be covered if it's away from the house it might not be covered and Mm -hmm. you know it has changed a little bit but it's still around i think i think around about 85 percent of our claims are away from the house Mm -hmm. and half of them are actually accidental damage it used to be higher but it's changed in the past year so you might think everyone thinks about the bike being stolen that's the biggest risk isn't it you know you come out you lock it up safely in the right sort of way outside and you come out back out after work or from the garage at home and your bike's been nicked so that's a total loss but more than, um, you know, our biggest um, reason for claim is accidental damage. So people riding into a pothole, um, you might be doored by another car, it might not be your fault. Mm-hmm. but that could happen. You're on an icy road, a slippery road, you're riding with other friends, one, one friend goes down, you know, takes you down and, and, and the, the cost of that sort of incident can be as high mm-hmm. um, as, as as a regular one. The, actually, just to add in without making it too long, the other bit is you you often wear, um, particularly if you're wearing raffa, some nice pock or cask or whatever, headgear, you can wear as much as your bike costs and <laughs> a lot of home insurances don't cover that. So we, we do that standard, you know. So if you slide down the road, your shoes might be two, three hundred pounds, your, mm-hmm. you know, bib shorts, bib, bib shorts or raffle ones, you know, you, you, you can you can take a lot out. So it kind of covers all of those things to get you back on the ride with as minimal financial loss as possible so you can get get back out riding. And that's really the I guess it's the purpose of any niche insurance to sort mm-hmm. of like to meet the need of a specific market. And that's
0: mm-hmm. that's what we're here to do. Mm, yeah exactly and, and, and that exactly i think that that highlights the kind of benefit of kind of niche understanding and also you know uh, what i wanted to bring it back to and i think this touches on you know your route into this business um you're not from the insurance world you you're an engineer by trade weren't you previously is that right
1: yeah I, I studied engineering and i went into the, um, the nuclear decommissioning and, and sort of oil and gas sort of field so sort of taking apart all the old sort of um uh crap, if you will, from, from the sort of 60s and 70s, robotics and electronics and that side of things. But I've always, I grew up in the Lake District, I've always, always ridden bikes. And I, to be honest, as much as engineering was there, it was never really my passion. I think it's a great, great um, sector, good knowledge for understanding how the world is put together and how stuff is manufactured and so forth. It's a phenomenal sort of background for that. But I always wanted to start a business. And, and the original business that I launched back in 2011 was was actually a comparison business. So the aim behind it was to, to, to build um, uh, use technology to build a service in, in, in a sector that I loved, which is i.e. cycling, uh, that enable people to spend more time riding. And the first iteration of that was a comparison engine. So um, really simple terms, you're looking for a component or a bike, we can tell you where to buy it online for the best price or locally for a good price as well. So we always tied in local retailers, which has become an important part of our ongoing business. <clears throat> But we added a bit more intelligence that said, if you, you tell us what bike you've got, we'll tell you which, bit, which bits fitted it. So it used a bit of engineering logic behind that to say, mm. you know, this frame will fit this headset or even something as simple as tyres, the right tyre size width um, for, for, for your bike. Um, cut a long story short, that 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 um, we, we had some really good success. We were getting, getting some good traffic, had some great partnerships. Um, the commercial model was completely flawed and, and it was only business plan from day one to... Um, to, to work with the insurance sector in enhancing their service to riders. So we had a chat with, it was a chat from Hiscox um, who I spoke with, and he said, we we pitched we can give a better service for your, your customers who have bikes. And he said, well, why did not you do an insurance policy? Spent a lot of time having a look at forums and social media, what the pain points were, having a look at the existing market, really clunky old ones. It was always big insurers or big brokers that did cycling as a really small part. And there was such a big gap to do things so much better that the, the opportunity was, it was a no brainer to go for it. So we, we built the original platform in 10 weeks, launched um, just after the Tour de France in um, uh, 2014. We went to a Rafa event, we sold coffee, we got 2000 email signatures and we were selling policies from day one. So it was, it was, it was an interesting one, but I think actually the background in being in the, in the bike market, understanding riders, the retail distribution manufacturers market, how all that worked, really contributed towards our success um, mm-hmm. from,
0: from when we moved into insurance. Well, particularly when you're doing like a, such a full service offering that you've got, you know, you need to know the parts and manufacturers, and the, you basically need to know the network of how that goes together. It's not as simple as um, you almost need to build it from that way round rather than going from the insurance point down because the, the insurance part is arguably relatively simple. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, It's it's about getting people back on their wheels and moving as quickly as possible, and to do that, you know, you need to know the infrastructure of of, of bikes and cycling rather than the other way around it would
1: be. yeah 100 like if, if you look at the experience a consumer has they're really going to give you money that mm-hmm. on the risk on the basis that in the future if i have an accident you're going to sort me out and put me back where i want to i think this is where i um, had a chat this morning about technology and, and technology being an enabler to, to enable that to happen but not mm-hmm. the solution of the experience in its own right uh, and, and also actually if you th- think about the experience when we looked at the market quite a lot of people Either got cash in your in your um, account, but it was massively reduced if you had an older bike, big accesses, or in a lot of cases you got vouchers for Halfords. Now Halfords is a, is a is a good brand, and they do they do stuff. A lot of people get the first bike from Halfords, but if you've got specialist bike, you do not want vouchers to go to Halfords, uh, uh, you know, and actually and just get something which fits within their remit. You really want something different. So rather than taking that approach, we work with independent retailers across all our territories, because a, a retailer is a really important part of the local cycling community. They can provide a better service to our customers than we could on the ground in person talk them through what they might be looking for and from our perspective it also helps with fraud prevention because if you're trying to defraud an insurance company you want cash so so it it, it feeds a lot of different things but yeah it's really about supporting the cycling community as well as as well as getting that person back riding
0: Mm. yeah no brilliant I um I think on that vein you know what I love is that you've started a business that's your passion and that's um you know that's that's a great thing. I, I don't think enough people get the opportunity to do that. I think there's a lot of people that make their business their passion because, you know, if you sort of commit a load of time and energy to something, but, but it's, it's lovely to see it being done the, the other way around. Um, I don't get me wrong, I'm sure at times during the, <laughs> during the business inception and doing it, there's, there's a, probably you want to throw a few bites against the wall, but um, <laughs> uh, but it's nice, it's that way around. And I wanted to talk to you about values, and we talked about this um, previously because you guys are a B Corp, aren't you? You're a registered B Corp. Um, um, what has that meant to your business in terms of, well, I suppose, did you, did you start with, we're going to be a B Corp, right, when you started the business? Um, was, that, was that something you thought about straight away?
1: No, not specifically B Corp. I mean, I, th- I think B is kind of a framework, if you will, for sort of getting yourself to a particular level, and, and it's a it's becoming increasingly well known as a as, as a brand now. Um, Brewdog just um, uh, certified the other day, so I've no doubt that's going to have a positive sort of um, impact on 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 the B Corp sort of brand and, and, and operations. But no, I, th- I think. I mean, you, you talk about like in the, pre- in the previous bit about the the pains of growing a business, you know, and the, every entrepreneur, everyone starting a business is gonna go through um, a lot of journeys, a lot of like higher highs than you would, would ever have from a normal job, but so many lower lows as well. And you need to ha- kind of have that resilience moving forward. And I guess like harking back to what I said before, the aim behind the business w- was really to enable, uh, provide a service that enables people to do more, uh, more of what they love. And I think sort of sitting behind that, you know, I've, I've kind of, I guess I've got a, a, everyone starts a business for a reason, some purely financial. And I think from my perspective, it's having like a, a level of purpose and actually wanting to make a small dent on the world. And I think my contribution towards um, improving the world I live in and particularly having kids now, you, you want, you want that to be the case, that they're inheriting a better place than you. we kind of born into or you will, when you move on. And, and, and I think, the the, the, the the culture and the ethics were there from day one. And B Corp was a really, really, we found a really, really great process of kind of formalising that in a way. Um, and we, we started the process in 2016. Um, um, uh, it took a couple of years and we, we certified in 2019. And it, it's quite a rigorous process about going through and analyzing every, every, every aspect of your, of your sort of business. And I guess for those people who are less familiar with it, I think, I think the core thing for me is not, it's not just about lowering your carbon footprint. It's mm-hmm. about changing the balance of, of, of you not being there as a company purely to make profit for a uh, return for your shareholders. They're very much the Milton Frieden, uh you know, doctrine, that, that side of things that's, that's all a company exists for to make money for shareholders. And mm-hmm. actually, I, I, actually changing that and flipping it and saying, well, actually we, we're here to sort of, support um, society and that includes your team and the, and the communities around you it includes um, your impact as a business so yeah actually what you do as a business is it harming the environment or the these mm. sort of things? Mm. For me becoming a b corp is not it's not just about us as a business reducing our sort of carbon footprint per se mm. it's actually really challenging why and how you operate as a business and moving it away from we're not just here to make a return for shareholders you know the, the Milton Friedman doctrine um, uh, of old but it's actually changing that sort of balance and, and flipping it to say we're actually here to looking at wider stakeholders so society um in general that includes the team that you work with the the the, you know the team your community around you it means environmental factors and your impact as a business on the environment or or or, you know within your sort of supply your your value chain all that sort of stuff and really analyzing all those sort of things and we we, uh, after going through the process the thing that was most impressive for me was how much the team bought into this being something that we stand for and i think i think You know, we've always had a really great team, but we've put even more focus into, and particularly during lockdown, you know, when there's been a lot of challenges with different people through, um, you know, either childcare or illnesses, like working alone in in long stints and really putting a lot of focus onto the team and support and, and kind of culture. Um, and, and also yeah analyzing what we do as a business looking at all, all our impacts and, and, and so forth and th- the outcome from that has been uh, i guess a much uh, an even more engaged team an even stronger culture and people have joined the business specifically because we're a b corp and i don't just mean like um entry-level positions i mean senior level positions that are coming in with skills and experience and expertise and want to shift out of just that normal rat race mm-hmm. and actually work for a purpose-led business and i do think that we're going to see a lot more of that particularly generation you know uh, whichever gen, gen z, uh, z uh, and, and so forth could, you know come, come through i think that's going to be re- more important as a, as a business to really put your values uh you know front and center
0: no i completely agree and uh, and i you know i did some interesting work recently where i was um you know a business uh, a business was trying to kind of formulate the, the b corp values and, and i was asked to look at what it meant from a kind of recruitment stand standpoint and a talent and, and talent management point of view and um you know, things like having really comprehensive, um, you know, comp and bend structure and, and reviewing those things. Um, what has it meant practically in terms of, have you had to put things in place like structurally, you know, whether it be around talent or recruitment that, that um, particularly things that you couldn't, didn't come, didn't necessarily come naturally, were, were there things that came up and you thought we, we haven't factored that in and how do you practically put those things in place?
1: Yeah, I guess, I guess if you're particularly looking down the sort of B Corp route, the, the, the first one and the most kind of basic one and one that actually scores a lot of points within the B Corp assessment it's having in the articles of association the governing documents for your business that you are not just there to generate revenue for, um, uh, return for shareholders. You're there to put these other things. So that's actually in the governing. So anyone that's then buying into your business or wants to see what you do as a business, it's kind of there in the, in the sort of basic governing documents. So that's that's super important. But yeah, I mean, with the team, we. Uh, when you, I think when you're growing a team, and you'll know this more than I, I do, you know, this is your... Uh, profession i think there's there's so many different phases which are really important one is the recruitment phase and actually during that sort of interview process or the selection process letting people being clear about those values and what they're expecting you know not just what we do as a business but expectations of them when they come into the business i think Mm -hmm. it's really important but then when someone starts it's taken a while to really sort of nail the onboarding process so they feel like part of the company from as early on as possible mm. you know so they feel sort of bought in and brought into the business where we're going as a business and I think the, the biggest thing from that is probably it, it has to not be about one person I mean, I mean particularly me it can't be just about one person within the business a culture you know has to it has to go through everyone within the business so I, one of the things we did was pull together a team there's five of us now on the sustainability team that focus on b corp and are giving in various different aspects of the business so i think that's that's a really good thing because then people take ownership of various parts of the of this in the business and then a lot of various people within the business depending on the role of the person that's coming in will will spend a bit of time with those individuals and particularly virtually is has is, is been a very hard thing to do you know onboarding someone when they're just sat in their home but we seem to have done really well like i, I think with that and I think ongoing embedding that practically, we, we, we started running an ENPS or an employee uh, net promoter score mm-hmm. uh, survey that we did. And we, we got um, a score, I was really impressed that we've got a score of 60, which bearing in mind it's minus 100 to, to plus 100. Uh, <laughs> it's not just naught to, to 100 is a, it's, it's a great score. And we, we're going to do that. Um, we're going to run that uh, by annually to make sure we're on top of it, people give an, uh, you know, an opportunity to give feedback, anonymous feedback, so they can save things. And there are there are, you know, we're not a perfect business no businesses but it gives an opportunity to get that feedback quite mm. early on address what's not quite right and then have that sort of continual improvement
0: mm. um sort of mindset do you think do you think when as you scale that will be harder does that does that worry you
1: yeah I, I think um yeah i've answered this question a couple of times recently the, the big yeah one of my biggest risks in scaling is is culture mm. and, and and not being able to maintain that as we grow and i think i think there has to be two aspects to that. I guess the rate at growth, I, I don't know what the time is from when someone starts to when someone feels can, and could share who we are as a business and the values and everything. It's not going to be immediately. It won't be one or two weeks. It'll be a bit of time before they do that. But I think if you get, grow too quickly, you're probably bringing too too much at one time. And that's unfortunately, that's an issue that we will probably have. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I do see, I haven't got the, the, the perfect answer to it right now, but I do see that as being a uh, one of our kind of key challenges as we
0: grow yeah no that i think that's a challenge for everyone i mean I, I you know definitely you know in my life i i, I worked for a, a really small recruitment business which honestly the best job i've ever had and, and then they grew they grew so quickly that the business the values kind of felt a bit lost for a period of time and it, and it was still a great business but it but, but the problem you then get is that when you buy into the values as a person if those values shift that your values haven't shifted then then you're at odds with the business and then you know I, i've commonly said that people actually they, they don't leave jobs or or companies they leave when the values kind of become too separate from their own um and i think that's i think that's only going to become more so i think i think people are you know look the pandemic has done a lot if you're working at home on your own and you're remote working now it becomes about things like what are the values of my companies like am i doing you know, good. Am I doing good work? You know, not and not in the, you know, not in the tree hugging, you know, unnecessarily kind of uh, puritanical version of it. Just, you know, do I feel like we're 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 sort of putting more into the world than we're taking out? Um, you know, and I think I think a lot of people look at those things. So because I I've answered more questions about those things and I've been asked to be in more initiatives about those things uh, than at any other point. Um, and, yeah, speaking from my own experience, I, I finally got off my feet to kind of try and build some um, not-for-profit relationships that I believe in about, you know, uh, that, that support my own values. And that's and that's in my own one-man band um, <laughs> recruitment business. So um, do you think there's um because I believe this, but I, I wonder what your thoughts – is there an ROI? Is the a return on investment on values? And do you- so – no, no, that, that, no, that, that I, I was going to say, does there need to be? I was going to end that with, does there need to be, I suppose. But uh,
1: I, I mean, I, th- I think, in short, yes, I do think there's an ROI on values. And, and, and there's a, there has actually been some research done. Um, I the research in 2018, 2019. It looked at big, uh, sort of uh, against the regular businesses versus, and, and I'm going to use B Corp as, as a, an example, because that's where the data came from. Mm. Um, and, and I think the, the the result was, if you're looking from a purely economic uh, uh, perspective. I think from 2013 to 2017, B Corp's had three times the, the amount of growth in a regular business. had. I think regular business growth is 15%. It was about 49%. So if you're looking at purely a hardcore like commercial sort of data, then yeah, it absolutely, absolutely does uh, sort of stack up. And one of the other th- parts of the, the, the business was that 66% of people are willing to pay more from a brand that, that, that reflects their values or, or has sort of sustainability embedded within them. So actually, arguably you could charge more for your services or um, through, through through you know, again, this is a purely commercial sort of uh, standpoint, you know, through, through being a business that, that has, has those values and, and uses them within within their sort of communications with customers. I think the other side of things, I mean, the ROI has to be in retention for me, um, not just retention of, of customers. That's really important. I mean, we're an insurance business and retention is arguably, I think, our biggest metric, you know, customer growth is great. And there's lots of other things, but retention is so, so important to us. But it's actually retention of employees, and there's nothing more disruptive than not getting the right employee on, but a very valuable employee moving on. And if you're not, as you mentioned before, if your values shift, or you're not embedding your values and representing them in everything that you're doing, and, and that, that, that employee becomes, uh, you know, disenfranchised with what you're doing because of that, and they move on, there's a huge impact on the team emotionally, socially, um, as well as the, the kind of the, the effort and cost and required in getting the replacement for them. So, I, I think from my opinion across the board I think there's an ROI some is measurable quite clearly measurable from the ones I mentioned before and some some is yeah some is less measurable but, but it's is very very valuable nonetheless so yeah I, I think there has to be
0: mm-hmm. it's interesting what you're saying about employees because it's one of the things that I kind of obviously my world is you know staff turnover and and, and sometimes you kind of sit there objectively and go why is the staff turnover at so high and and I think people um It's great to hear you doing things like, uh, you know, internally looking at your net promoter score with your your employees because I think that sort of stuff is absolutely vital because quite often where I sort of see these businesses with high turnover, anecdotally, when I sort of speak to those businesses, what I notice is there's a huge disconnect with how the business views itself and its culture and how its staff actually view its culture. Because I always say, if you want to know about your company culture, ask your staff. Don't tell me what's written on your wall in the boardroom. You know, like these are our values. Because are they? You know, they might be the, the, you might aspire to those values, but it doesn't mean that they are your values. And it's, it's really important to kind of find out what they are, but you don't know unless you ask the people that work for you.
1: And I, I think you have to, I think you have to put yourself out there and do that continually. You should, I think, as a business, as a responsible business. Like it's interesting how you kind of phrase that actually. It's saying that the, the business views these as values. And I think what you mean by that is the, Um, is the directors or the owners uh, ownership of the the company, you know, as as being the business, whereas actually the business is, it has to be the entirety of everyone within it. Yeah. Um,
0: Well, we're going to talk about technology because obviously you, you know, you fit in the insure tech bracket. I I, I mean, that's a, (laughs) this is such a vastly wide term. It's like, it's a tech enabled insurance um, provision, right? And and I was going to ask you a little bit more about the kind of um, technology that you guys utilise um but the the, the the point I was actually thinking of making about insure tech we tend to focus more on the tech bit um but you guys are very customer centric you know it, it's been built literally backwards from what do our customers need do you think sometimes we kind of focus too much on the tech and and, and then we lose sight of kind of what the customer wants or customer sort of desires might be
1: Yes, I just I mean I think if we take this sort of technology piece uh, before I think when you when you kind of come through the startup world and particularly coming to the insure tech world, there's a lot of there's a lot of buzzwords around various sort of points in time. You know, came right through from from the digital wallets with GetNip and all these sort of ones and the sort of on-demand insurance with Trove and then um, you know blockchain and AI and all, and all these sort of things and then the, you know the investment industry because you know insuretech is largely investment funded, get very excited about these different sort of pieces of technology and actually a lot of them have fallen by the wayside because they don't necessarily represent the customer need or the customer requirement or how a customer wants to interact with an insurance product. And I think that gets lost in, in the sort of the excitement and the buzz, you know, around these sort of things. And I think, I'm a massive fan of technology. I love technology for what it enables me to do, or enables uh, people to do in general. But it's not the end experience. It's not the end service that we're providing. We, we are, you know, we, we're here to protect, protect against financial risk, particularly for, from my perspective with you know, uh, with my, uh, our customers with, with, with cyclists. And for me, that the technology piece has to be an enabler. It's got a, and, and I think we will use new pieces of technology as they come on but the, the real aim of doing that is just to make the customer interaction quicker more satisfying uh you know uh, to build as, as a brand rather than actually just focusing on the one thing itself mm-hmm. and i think i think the more that we focus on experiencing the customer the consumer at all points in, you know touch points along the the kind of value chain if you will from acquisition through to you know, our cloud accounts that can do midterm adjustments, claims right through to actually the payments sort of structure. How is someone paid um, at the back end? How quick can it be? And there's, it's interesting. You know, there's been a lot of if you look at the there's no insure tech or insurance company really that has purely through the means of technology completely disrupted the market. Mm. They've done a particular point in the value chain, you know, there's Buy miles um, James Blackman Buy miles are doing great things within the on-demand, uh, oh, sorry, Buy miles, you know, in, in, in car insurance, which has been amazing in the pandemic, but even like, you know, companies such as lemonade, you know, they, they, they talk about is AI gym, I think is their, their, their bottom. They could, they could, versus um, a claim in X number of seconds. Well, actually, you know, the, the, the I think the consumer is not going to necessarily be that frustrated if it's if it's a second faster or a ten seconds faster or even an hour faster as long as as long as they can trust that company, they're going to do the right thing. pay me out the right amount of time. treat me as a, as a human being. Don't just treat me as a you know an asset and I think you need to look at that kind of whole piece rather than just sort of focusing on an individual piece of technology if you're really going to, going to shape the market and change the market and do something something different mm-hmm. that That being said, I will say there are some insurance that providers that are pure. Technology providers they slot into one part of the value chain, and then yes, that value to a and an incumbent insurer, for example, is very valuable because they can reduce their loss ratio, but sorry, their expense ratio by X. Mm. But I'm, I'm kind of talking about the yeah the, that wider piece of of you know having a customer centric business.
0: Yeah, exactly, and I think that's one of the problems when when we talk we're trying to lump kind of insurance together. It's like you've got technology solutions that serve the insurance market, and then you've kind of got what I would frame like digital enabled insurance coverage and that could be anything from you know a digital mta through to a full stack you know full stack d- digitally native insurer um and they're not one and the same thing you know one might be kind of some risk analytic tool that exactly as you say plugs in um and then sure you probably should mind you even then i suppose you know should be customer centric you know what does what does this tech enable um an individual to do um i've had a couple of people on recently talking about um uh, AI tools and machine learning and 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 basically that my learning on it after speaking to these experts about three hours is that the whole focus should be on augmentation of like the existing skill sets like enabling people to be able to do their jobs better and and take away a lot of the stuff that machines are really good at which is volume monotonous tasks and and then when you put that to even taking it back to the values led stuff that we were talking about, people don't want to do boring repetitive tasks. And generally, they're not very good at it, you know, like uh, a- admin <laughs> says the man is terrible at admin, you know. Um, yeah, I, I, it's, it's, it's just, it enables people to kind of be better. And then, then you can kind of take that. And I think one of the focuses that people tend to have is that when you when you talk about automation and technology, I think there's an instant leap in the head to say, right, that's going to reduce costs. Um, And then the fear with that is if we reduce costs, then do we have to kind of reduce the price and therefore profitability of our business? Well, no, you just you just give yourself room to kind of create a premium product and a better experience is the way that I look at it. Absolutely, yeah. I, th- I think
1: you're absolutely right. I mean, you can choose to do one or two things with it, can't you? I think it depends which sector you're in. You, if you're in the motor space, where it's a zero margin game, oh, yeah, yeah. it might mean you make the fraction of a percent of profit, which over you know a lot of customers it is great. But I, I, I'm completely with you. you know? I think I think it depends what, 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 what product they're buying and what they're expecting back from it. And, it is worth, I guess, sort of touching on that point that I do think where some of the disruption has happened and will continue to happen is is looking at that um, the value in insurance. And you know, when it first came into the market, you know, starting from the kind of first principles perspective, out of every hundred pounds that a customer gives me, how much is actually going back to, towards paying claims? Yeah, because that's ultimately what a business is there to do. Yeah. And and you very soon learn uh, that, that, that in a lot of industries, it's very little. Some industries is single digit percentages, you know, um, and, and and then you look at where where's the rest of that money going to. And a lot of it is in inefficiencies with, you know, expense ratios that are put on there by consumers plus acquisition. And that acquisition can be through intermediaries, brokers such as myself, or it can be, you know, sort of direct sort of business. But I, I, I think there is always that question for me is if if you operate the business as efficiently as possible, you either have the option then to provide that absolutely next level service or some other benefits that the customer is not expecting, or it allows you to be more price flexible, mm. you know, to, to say, actually, well, in this case, we want to give a bit of a discount. We want to work, you know, we, we need to be more price sensitive so we can, you know, get more of the market, for example. So I think there's a range of things. I think, I think the more that we strip out, like you said, that manual repetitive work that customers are doing, bearing in mind customers still... A decent chunk of the time, still want to pick up the phone and speak to someone because humans are humans, you know. I, I think once, once that's sort of at, at a good level, then at least it gives you the options then to do what you want with the rest of that, um, you know, that that pot out of the hundred hundred pounds, hundred percent of of
0: the premium. Mm. And it all ties in, really. I mean, I, I think I think I love the way that you you seem to look at insurance. Is one, it's an enabler, and and secondly, you know, it's a social good, right? It's a social. That's um, what it's there for. Um, And and, and the last thing I wanted to, because I'm conscious of your time, but the last thing I wanted to pick up with you, something that we talked about was that we're getting much, much better at identifying and understanding risk to the point where we can do it on a granular detail and we can personalise it. Um, And obviously you're talking about kind of individuals and uh, it's a bit different with your business, but I just wanted to get your view on this maybe. Do you think we risk that if we get, if we individualise the kind of uh, understanding of risk to such a granular detail, that we risk the kind of, losing the law of large numbers, which applies to insurance. So therefore, people become individually uninsurable or businesses become uninsurable. Um, And and it's almost contrary to that kind of social good aspect of insurance because you then kind of just have these... Some people can afford it and some people can't, and it just exacerbates that problem, potentially. Absolutely,
1: yeah. I mean, I I think, yeah, you really it's 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 a tricky topic in many ways, isn't it? but the, the I mean the whole the whole purpose of insurance, regardless of the model that sits behind it, is the um you know the premiums of the many pay, pay for the claims of the of the few and you you kind of put you on a put yourself in a position as a as as an insurer where you're not adversely selecting so you're not just bringing those people on who are likely to claim and 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 frequently and so forth but at the same time making sure that people who do actually genuinely need that cover can can access it and there is there is there is a kind of moral you know there's a moral and kind of social aspect to that um uh, as well which is it's tricky isn't it there's there's no there's no sort of formulate sort of rules around it i i think I guess as a consumer, as a B2C consumer, even as B2B, you still want to buy the right cover at a reasonable price for your particular situation. Mm-hmm. If if people not being able to get insured prevents them from from, from doing business because an insurance company perceives them to be a higher risk, that's that's not a good thing. And, and, and there are some great things going on around the world, the kind of micro in Africa to protect mm-hmm. against crop damage and crops. So, so I, I do feel like there is a there's an area of this sort of insurance space that is kind of leaning in towards that in some certain risk. That being said, there are there are certain risks which shouldn't be covered. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think I think I, and, and and arguably, you know, the insurance industry for many years has been um, a great, um, uh, I guess, advocate or, or force behind improving safety and you know, life after. Other. We're talking, you know, the, after the fire of London, you know, the, the fire breaks or the distance between houses. We're talking about um, uh, seatbelts in cars; those sort of things that really genuinely save a lot of lives and improve performance. But, but. Um, Yeah, so the question in my mind is then, how how can we go beyond that? What is the modern day equivalent of that? How can we do stuff? And I think, you know, the biggest one has to be insurance of, uh, of, of, you know, uh, companies that um, have a massive impact on the world we're talking you know fossil fuels certain types of agriculture certain areas that, that arguably they should because of their impact on the world have, have have a higher premium for being able to transact business and perhaps some of that premium does go towards uh, schemes or benefit you know things that, that can benefit the, the wider society and the environment so mm-hmm. it's, it's an interesting topic I think that's probably one you could go deep into
0: for a, a few hours uh, with a bit, more, <laughs> a bit more of
1: a look but yeah yeah,
0: no, exactly. I mean, no, I've been, I was, I was talking quite recently about we're quite good at green finance, but we haven't done a lot of green, you know, insurance initiatives yet. And, and you know, it's coming. It's, it's definitely coming. But, the, you know, the setting up your portfolio where you don't underwrite companies that are uh, damaging to the environment, or, or at least you work with them to kind of, in the same way that your, your, your point was exactly right, you know, we work with people on a health and safety standpoint to kind of help them reduce their risk and exposure. Um, we're not doing enough of that on the kind of sustainability efforts, um, and we should be. Um, and and if we bring that all back to the kind of B Corp sort of values, um, I'll try and say that again. B Corp values. Uh, <laughs> we we know that if we if we do those things, actually, there's a return on that as well. The, the, the chances are, if you're working with a company that's prepared to work with you on uh, sustainability issues that's a well-run company that's a company that's kind of looking to change and and actually that's a company you want to work with long term because they'll probably be more profitable um companies that are stuck in the kind of old ways of doing things are they risks you want to take on um in the long run yeah couldn't agree more couldn't agree more yeah, super. Well, Dave, I um, I I will be conscious of your time, and um, and thank you very much for your time. I really really appreciate it. Um, it's great to talk about that. It's, it's not often we get to talk about values on these things. We usually talking about insurance and just just insurance. So thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it.
1: No, great to be on board. Look forward to, to hearing back. Perfect.
0: As always, this podcast is brought to you by FinPro Search Partners, often simply known as FinPro. FinPro is an executive recruitment business working in the insurance and insure tech space on an international basis. If you would like to find out more about FinPro, please visit our website, www.wearefinpro.com, or our FinPro company page on LinkedIn. I've been your host, Alex Bond, and I would personally love to connect with anyone who is interested in the changing world of insurance. So feel free to reach out to me directly, um, either on LinkedIn or via my email of alex at I hope you enjoyed the podcast and I hope to see you back next week. Thank you.